This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello and welcome to The Twilight Show. Thanks for joining me. Uh, today I'm joined by Rashid Sadiq, who's a teacher and educational consultant based in Nigeria. Among other things, Rashid is particularly interested in storytelling. So we'll be talking about this and lots more in our show today. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome to the Twilight Show, everyone. I'm Graham Stanley speaking to you live from Mexico City. As I mentioned in the introduction on today's show, I'll be talking to Rashida Sarik about storytelling and other aspects of her work and educational interests. As well as a teacher and educational consultant, Rashida is an experienced educational specialist with a demonstrated history of working in the individual and family services industry, strong educational professional skills and coaching, classroom management, lesson planning, educational technology and instructional design. I'll be talking to Rashidat about these and more after the Teachers Talk radio news. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Just Stop Oil have spray-painted universities across England. The climate campaigners used orange paint to coat buildings at the universities of Leeds, Manchester and Cambridge, according to a report on the BBC News website. 
The latest protests came after other universities across the country were also targeted. Just Stop Oil say the protests are against the UK government's plans to licence new oil and gas projects. The BBC report featured comments from a spokesperson for University of Leeds, which said that whilst they support the right to legal protest, they were hugely disappointed that the results had been vandalism. At the University of Cambridge, a protester painted the neo-Gothic King's College orange and was confronted by members of the public. The majority of protesters have been arrested and charged with criminal damage. After the Tory party conference, attention turned to Labour proposals for education should they be elected. Bridget Phillipson, Shadow Education Secretary, said a Labour government would upskill non-math specialists in primary schools to create the maths equivalent to phonics. The announcement marks a clear dividing line with Conservative policies, with Labour focused on the youngest school children, whilst Conservatives have focused on extending compulsory maths teaching to 18. The curriculum review would also be tasked with bringing maths to life and directing teachers to show children how numeracy is used in the world around them. The plans have been tentatively welcomed by the NAHT and General Secretary Paul Whiteman said it was vital that Labour builds upon the excellent maths teaching that is already taking place. Jeff Barton of Askell added, Ensuring that primary schools have the funding for the resources they need was vital to improving attainment. After the distressing news of events unfolding in Israel, many news outlets have reported on government plans to support Jewish schools with extra security guards. Security and police patrols have already been increased, but the government has given £3 million in funding. Measures taken by some schools already include pupils being told to remove blazers, and school trips being postponed. The BBC also reported that three schools have closed due to concerns. The Community Security Trust, CST, which provides protection for Jewish communities in the UK, said there had been 139 anti-Semitic incidents since the recent attacks on Israel. At this time last year, there had been only 21 incidents. A government spokesperson said it was very concerned a small number of Jewish faith schools had temporarily closed and that it would be working to support them to open safely. Finally, BBC Wales education correspondent Bethan Lewis writes that children as young as seven or eight are using social media, according to a major survey in Wales. Responses from more than 32,000 children aged 7 to 11 suggest almost half use social media sites or apps a few times a week. Public health experts said the data was concerning, as most social media carry minimum age recommendations of 13. Parents also responded with many saying they found it hard to strike the right balance between the benefits and pitfalls of smartphones. Full details of the survey can be found on the BBC Wales section of the news website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Hello and welcome back everyone. And welcome in particular to my special guest, Rashidat Sadiq. Thank you so much for joining me, Rashidat. Thank what have we been up to today? Thank you, Graham. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, today has been a little bit busy. I did get to rest in the morning and spend time with my family. 
Then I attended um, a Toastmasters event. I'm a member and I practice some of my speaking skills there. And I came back home and got ready to be with you. Oh, wow. Toastmasters. Now, I've heard of Toastmasters before, um, but I've, I've never participated or, or heard of anyone who's actually been part of them. Could you tell, tell us a little bit more about what it, what it involves? Okay, so Toastmasters basically was founded in the U.S. about 100 years ago and initially was done to encourage young men to develop their public speaking and leadership skills. Mm -hmm. And now it's in so many countries all over the world. It's in Nigeria and Africa. And we joined just to have a safe space to practice our speaking and to grow as leaders, to network with other people. So it's, it's a good thing. Sounds great. That sounds really good. Um, so Rashidat, I usually start by asking my guests to talk about how they became teachers. So what was it that attracted you to education? How did you get started as a teacher? Yeah, yeah. my, my teaching journey is quite interesting because that wasn't what I studied in school, but I've always loved teaching. Like Even when I was younger in primary school, I used to teach my junior ones. I used to teach dolls, you know, I was that child that would line up the dolls and teach oh, them wow. what I was taught <laughs> in school. Fantastic. So, but, you know, moving on, um, I decided I wanted to go into something medical and I studied veterinary medicine, worked a bit in the field. But when I started having children and I started taking my children to school, I would just hang back a little bit, watch their assemblies. And I just got drawn in and realized that this was where I wanted to be, you know, molding lives of youths. And, and I knew that we did have a bit of a teacher gap in Nigeria, not, not enough people in the profession and I just decided to go for it. Oh wow, so you, you came quite late then to teaching yes, after, after you had your children you said? Not all the children, I had when I had my, after I had my second child, yes. Mm -hmm. All right. Yes. Wow, and um, so what what did you do to, to get started then as a teacher? Did you go back to school or? Yes, so initially I, I volunteered at my children's school um, to work yeah. part-time and when I did realize that that was for me I went to get a PGDE and then later on I got a CELTA and I've done so many courses ever since and hoping to do more. Wonderful and was it clear from the start that what you wanted to be involved in was teaching English or did you did you get involved in teaching other subjects? Um, I did get involved with teaching other subjects. I, I, other subjects. Um, I was a bit into science. I taught a little bit of French, but I think my strength was in English. And then I knew that not so many people, you know, had that strength that I had. So I just decided to hone it and, and build on it. Yeah, makes sense. And what about the veterinary science then? Did you ever, have you had ever, have you ever had any regrets about not becoming a vet? Well, no, I, I never have because I did practice for about four years mm -hmm. and um, it wasn't as fulfilling as teaching is. Um, it, well, it had its good parts, but I think I, I'm just in love and I decided to stay here because <laughs> I've been teaching now for over 10 years. This is where I'm going to stay. Okay, good to hear it. And do you have a, a favorite age group to teach? It's a primary is it secondary what what is it 
Okay, so I do teach a wide range, but I think my favorite would be upper primary, junior secondary, that range from maybe nine to 12 or 13. Right, yes. I think that's a nice age to teach, isn't it? What is it about yeah. that age group that appeals to you? Um, I think they are, they're old enough to, to comprehend a lot of nuances, but at the same time, they're still at that level of innocence where they are willing to play with you. They're not trying to feel too big. They don't mind, you know, getting down and having fun with you. They don't see you as too old or old school. <laughs> so it's, right. it's fun to be with that age group. Yes, no, I, I think I agree with you. I think that age group is is a very fun age to teach. And it's before they becoming they become self conscious teenagers and yeah, exactly. then it becomes a little bit hard to get anything out of them. Exactly, exactly. But like I said, I've taught a wide range and I still do have interactions even with teens. But I think the day to day teaching I, I prefer the, the that age. <laughs> right. And I'd love to hear more about the education system and teaching English in Nigeria. Is it a compulsory subject? Is it is that from primary, secondary, or how is it? Okay, so in, in Nigeria, English is our lingua franca. So it's sort mm -hmm. of like the mode of instruction everywhere. Although right. there are some um, policies, the national policy does allow for children to be taught in the native language up to primary three but most schools almost all institutions actually start even the nurseries with english so english is compulsory and all our higher education is in english compulsory okay um, i apologize i didn't realize english was the lingua franca in in nigeria for some reason um i imagine there's probably a lot of other languages is that the case Yes, we do have over 200 tribes and wow. languages in Nigeria. Wow, that's uh, amazing. And how many languages do you speak? Um, I speak two fluently. I speak Yoruba and I speak English fluently. Then I do have a bit of Arabic, a bit of French. I think that's it. And is it is it typical when you're in the classroom to have a real mixture of languages with the students or do they generally predominantly speak a particular language in a particular area of the country? Um, it, it does depend. There are different er um, languages in different areas, but depending on the type of school, um, it's a federal, like it's a republic. So there's no, there's mm -hmm. a lot of intercultural mixing. So you are likely right. to get it's, it's rare to get just one single language in a class. You're likely to get at least two or three, you know, even in um, some areas where you have like faith-based schools or other schools that might limit um, the range, but it's really, you, you hardly get just one single tribe or language in a classroom. Okay, right, understood. And what about um, what you actually teach? Is it is it mainly language um or do you teach literature and other things when you teaching english okay so um it's a mixture of everything we we teach language especially in the younger classes we teach literacy and then as they grow right. older we also move into literature 
So I do have like guided reading sessions with my children or with the students and pupils. I have, um, you know, we look at the literary devices in our reading texts, but in the higher secondary school, there is a separate literature as a subject for those that would like to go into the arts probably. Mm -hmm. And I imagine given that it's a lingua franca, motivation of the students isn't difficult or am I wrong? Well, it depends. So for, for me, I live in a metropolitan area, so motivation is not a problem at all. Most of them are used to English. They have exposure to international television, cable and all of that. But we do have some of the rural areas where it's, it's difficult to get them to speak English. Mm -hmm. It's difficult. You have to um, use a multilingual approach if you want to get them to understand and to move on. Um, so yeah, it depends. But generally, I haven't had that experience of lack of motivation, but I know a lot of teachers who have. Right, that makes sense. Yeah, so English is, is a lot more spoken um, in the metropolitan areas and the large cities, etc. Yes, yes. Right, yeah. And I'd like to move on now to talk about storytelling, which uh, we've made the kind of focus of this show, this chat we're going to have. Um, and I know you're particularly interested in this and that also you have a lot of experience with storytelling. What is it that appeals uh, to you and why do you think it's important for teachers to know about? Okay, so storytelling is magical and I think we, we all believe the same. And it's in the African context, it's even more important because for a long time, our traditions were passed down orally through stories. I mean, before the advent of television, we used to have tales by moonlight where you'd gather around in the compound, around a tree with a grandmother or an old aunt, you know, just telling you stories, folk tales, or stories about your ancestors and whatnot. So it's, it's a very African thing and it appeals you know, to the students I teach, but even on a global scale, I know we all love stories. Everybody loves a good story. Even if it's a story about your neighbor, you tend to just lean in and want to know what's going to happen next, you know? So it's a beautiful way to teach because you get a lot of um, the learners tuning in. You don't really have to convince them. They want to know what's going to happen next. And the beautiful part of storytelling is that all the language skills are, are involved or can be involved. So you have listening skills and if you're able to make your storytelling participatory or interactive like the session i had with you you have speaking skills and you can develop that into writing skills and reading skills so it's it's a good pivot you know to get into all the aspects of english language teaching that you'd want to as a teacher of course yes and speaking of speaking of when we first uh, spoke um we first met when you kindly joined a storytelling session that i was doing for a teacher development course recently and we talked briefly in that session about different kinds of storytelling that exist and i remember you you talking about the the um the techniques that you were particularly interested in could you tell us a little bit more about those because i think you have a a number of techniques that you employ uh, in the classroom that you're particularly fond of is that right yes yes so i've i've experiment experimented like over a year now with storytelling and um 
I've tried to use storytelling to introduce grammar that works well. One, one good thing I like is that aspect of having the learners participate. So I like to pause in the middle of a story and ask for predictions. And that helps because the learners know they need to be on their toes. They're also able to be creative as they sort of want to co-create the story with you. It helps with their inference. It helps with their conclusion. It helps with their sequencing. So there are so many skills that just that, what do you think is gonna happen next brings, or what do you think will happen to social character? You know, so there, there's that aspect that I love. I also love the aspect that I can reach deeper and ask about feelings and start to get authentic language from the learners you know how how would you feel if you were this character or how do you think he felt so they're able to really um speak and one beautiful part of storytelling is that even when you don't have learners who their language is well developed you can introduce a chant you can introduce action and miming things that get them to participate and be part of the story i, I like that aspect of storytelling i also employ role play so sometimes we, you listen to the story and at the end of the story, you get the learners to form groups and recreate some certain aspects of that story. And it also gives them an opportunity to really digest the story. Sometimes they, they use their own words, you know, to, mm -hmm. to say what the characters would say. Um, retelling and summarizing are also other techniques that we use with storytelling to really get the learners to participate sometimes you even tell them you give a writing task and you ask them to create a different ending or to write the story from another character's point of view you know all of those different techniques and there's so much more recently i started introducing personal storytelling in the classroom and i tell a story from my personal history and before I start the story I, I tell them the topic of the story the title and I ask them to guess or to tell me the things they'd want to know you know so that already gets us gets us exchanging ideas and they they get really eager to know more and it, it's wonderful how sometimes uh, pupils don't know that you're a human being outside the classroom but when you tell them a personal story their, their eyes light up oh so you have children Oh, so you do this, you know, and it makes you build a bond and build a better rapport. There, there are so many of those techniques. I hope I haven't made a ramble, but I guess I've shared some. <laughs> no, no, not at all. You've you've shared a lot of very different uh, techniques or a kind of summary of them, which uh, it sounds fascinating. What I love about it is that it's never just about the story, is it? It's all about what you can do before and after and around the story and making use of the story as a platform to to examine language and to encourage yes. practice and as you said to personalize what you're doing with the students so that they become better familiar with with yourself and the others as well which is is fascinating yeah yeah so um do you have any particular favorite stories rashidad do you, you you mentioned talking about sort of stories about yourself or your life, um, but is that mainly what you focus upon uh, to try and get the students to tell stories about their own lives? Or do you also look at stories in the news or traditional folk stories or, or, or any, any other ones as well? Or is it a combination? 
I, I, I think I'd say it's a combination, although I don't go too much into stories in real life, mm-hmm. uh, but a lot of folk tales, traditional tales, personal tales, fairy tales, um, mm-hmm. you know, wisdom tales. So in, in West Africa here, we have a lot of um, the Turtis trickster, wise man, clever man kind of stories. So I, I, I try to use that because that reminds me a lot of my childhood. And I personally forgot a lot of the stories I learned as a child. So it's interesting to me to start to do that research all over again, talk to some people I know, read books, go on the internet, you know, to try to find those stories. And I think it's good um, for us to share with the children or the learners as a part of identity building, because Mm -hmm. I realize that a lot of um, personally, and even with the children that we have now, I grew up on Enid Blyton and Roald Dahl books. Right. So, you know, after that stage of listening to storytelling, I sort of started to lose my culture. And I see mm. a lot of the learners now, maybe not with books, but with TV shows because they're, they're on this, uh, Disney Channel, they're on Nickelodeon, you know. So we have that risk of not being able to get the values um, that are native to us you know, of losing them totally. For me, I think I want to build learners that have a sense of identity, but can fit in globally anywhere. So bringing those folk tales, you know, exploring some of the values and the themes and the lessons within, um, I love that aspect of moral, you know, being teaching morals without being preachy, you know, and yeah. allowing yeah. the learners to pick the lessons sometimes, even on their own, when we share what did you learn? What did you get? Some of the things I never thought of, the learners are going to say as what struck them from the story. Right, of course, yes. And that's it. We, I think um, you've, you've hit upon a, an important point here as well, isn't it? In every culture, we have such a rich background of folktales and traditional stories that um, in in many cases are in danger of being lost because of the kind of globalized TV and cinema, et cetera, that we tend to get uh, easily well, ready, ready access to as well. Yeah. Is, is there a kind of movement to try and recover the folktales of Nigeria, the traditional stories? Is there a kind of literature of that available? Has it, has it sort of become more, um, has it become stronger because of the internet or through books, et cetera, or is it still in very much in danger of dying out, do you think? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure I can say, but I know that mm. people are starting to become more aware. So we have new younger authors, children book authors, adapting the stories more and more. And we mm-hmm. have um, access even online to eBooks or folk tales. Now, if you even on Google, there are many websites that promote folk tales. So I, I don't think they can die out on YouTube. There are videos that are now in um, animation form, mm-hmm. you know, that promote yeah. these old folk tales. And I think we are moving also um, towards a dynamic where apart from the old folk tales, we have creators making new hero, new heroes 
you know, with African backgrounds. So yeah, sometimes yeah. with a mixture of the old, you know, um, some of their superpowers are going to be related to mythology from way back, but it's still um, more advanced. So a, a sort of Superman, but the African version, you know, with African powers or something like that. So I think wow. um, we, we are slowly moving to that sense of consciousness where people do want to maintain their identity while still um, being part of the, the growth and technological advancement of the global world. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic to hear. Um, I wonder if it might, mightn't be too much to ask to have you tell us a, a little bit about one of those stories or one of those heroes. Um, could you do that? Is it something that you could readily tell us a little bit about or at least summarize one of the stories? Okay, so I, I, I think I can do that. There's, um, so in, in African culture, there, um, mm. depending on which part of Africa you are, we do have different protagonists, but they tend to have the same character. So for example, in Ghana, you'd hear of Anansi the spider. In some parts of Northern East Africa, you'd hear of um, the hare, the wise hare. In mm -hmm. Western Nigeria, we have the tortoise. He's the wise man. And he has, you know, two or three different personas. In some, in some stories, he's wise and clever and helpful. In other stories, he's a trickster, but then he always gets what's coming to him. So I'll, I'll just give a brief of one of the stories. Um, the way the story goes is that the lion was the king of the jungle and he ruled very, very kindly and wisely and nicely. And one day the elephant just took a look and thought to himself, I'm bigger than that lion. I'm better than that lion. I'm stronger than that lion. Why should he be king? I think I'm going to be king. And he went off to face the lion and said, oh lion, I think you're a horrible king. I'm stronger than you and better than you. I want to be king. The lion was perplexed, but um, thought to himself, how is he going to settle this? And then the elephant made a declaration. He said, I challenge you. I challenge you to a wrestling match. And whoever wins that wrestling match gets to be the king. And so early morning, they went to the clearing and all the animals were there and they watched this fierce and ferocious wrestling match, thumping and bumping and hitting and crashing. And at the end of the wrestling match, the lion lost. He was really sad, but he had to keep his word. So he left the jungle and just stayed at the outskirts while the elephant became the ruler. The elephant was pompous and proud and arrogant. He wasn't a just ruler at all. He bullied all the other animals and made them obey and serve him at all times. And he was never a really good judge. He didn't do any good for the people, the animals in the forest. All the animals started to complain, but they didn't know what to do. So they approached the clever tortoise and he had an idea. He had them dig a huge pit and he went to the lion and said to the lion, King Lion, I can restore your throne to you. Are you willing to come back? He said, I don't mind being the king of the jungle, but I already gave my word to the elephant. He said, don't worry about that. I'm going to get rid of that proud and arrogant elephant. 
So he went to the elephant and announced to the elephant, Oh, great elephant, you're so handsome. You're so, so regal. We want to give you a coronation ceremony. You deserve a huge crown. Well, the elephant, being the proud and arrogant king that he was, was very happy to finally be accepted and recognized by all the animals. So they fixed the date, called for the musicians, got their regal clothes, got a lot of food. Unknown to the elephant, the throne was placed on top of a hole with raffia mats covering it. And then on the morning of the coronation, they led the elephant in a procession, singing, Let's crown the elephant. Let's crown the elephant. Dancing and drumming. And when it was time to sit on the throne, the elephant sat with a thud and fell into the ditch. <gasps> ah! He screamed. What's happening? And then all the animals confronted him and told him what a bad ruler he'd been and how they wanted the lion back. The elephant realized his folly and begged and pleaded to be pulled out of the ditch and promised to never disturb them again and allow the lion back to be king. And that was what they did. The end. Fantastic. That was great. Uh, thank you for sharing that. That's really, really good. So that's um, a traditional story, is it? Um, from Western Nigeria, did you say? From Western Nigeria, yes, the Yoruba tribe. So the, the, the chant I was saying has a Yoruba version, but I just translated uh, that into English. <laughs> and the okay. El is like the refrain, you know, that the listeners yeah. would say while listening to the story. Wonderful. And so, Rashidat, how would you approach the teaching? How would you incorporate that into teaching? Would that be for... Uh, younger learners, I guess, sort of the eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds that you were talking about? Yes, ideally. But interestingly, these stories can be adapted to anyone and everyone. So if I was um, the two topics that I'd love to relate that story to would be mm. onomatopoeia and imperatives. So if I was telling that story to children, I would probably use more imperatives. Get me my horn. Where's my food? Bring me this, you know, things like that. Stand up, yep. sit down. I would use that. And I would, in the role play, ask the learners to do the same. Like, okay, what commands would you give if you were the king elephant? And, and things like that. I would also look at bump, crash, thump, things like that. And I would ask them to give more, you know, sounds like that. But if I, if I was to do that with older learners, we would yeah. um, do something different. We'd probably, I would ask them to tell the story from the perspective of the elephant, you know, or I would ask them to create a song or a poem or, you know, different things just around that. Uh, I could ask them to create a comic. It depends on, you know, how, how old they are. Uh, but even for the older learners, I, I might not use this particular story for senior, like older mm -hmm. teens, but I believe that all stories are, um, amenable to anything. I might use the story, but in my story, I would be talking about um, leadership. You know, I would yeah. ask them to write an essay. So I'd use the story just like an introduction to the class, but the, the class itself would probably be looking at leadership styles, different types of leadership, um, 
monarchy, democracy. So there are many ways I could weave that story depending on the learners I'm teaching. Yes, of course, I can see it now. And the story you told could also be about conspiring against leaders and yes, and politics yes. and politics uh, manipulating people, etc. Uh, exactly. as well. Exactly. Greed, the greed of man, the, you know, yeah. the, the traits of a good leader. We could bring a lot of topics out of that. Wow, that's wonderful, yeah. That's really interesting. And I know that you are involved in a lot of, well, I think you're involved in a lot of teacher training about stories and are, I believe, in communities of practice with other teachers related to storytelling. Is that, is that right or am I making that up? <laughs> you, you are right. I do belong to communities, one, one community of practice yeah. um, regarding storytelling. And then, well, we had the group that we had for your interactive storytelling session. But um, the Crest uh, was a course I took that actually showed me how, just introduced me to using storytelling in the classroom. And mm -hmm. this was something that um, after the course, we have a, a, a group on Facebook creative and engaging storytelling for teachers, where we all get to meet and discuss our ideas. And after that, I did also uh, get the opportunity to bond with African storytelling teachers. So we right. were able to give um, a webinar with, uh, within Africa ELTA, also about using storytelling in the classroom. And just recently, I did a storytelling education global online conference with some of the members of that community of practice. So I think it's, it's been something that's very good for us because a lot of times we, we attend courses, we take courses, but because we don't have any support or we don't have any follow-up, you find yourself going back to the status quo and what you used to do in your lessons before you learned the new technique and you sort of forget if you're not careful. So that has been really helpful for me. Oh, yes, it's so important, isn't it, to be able to follow up whatever, if it's a conference session or a course, to be able to continue experimenting with it and sharing, if you can, yes. with the other people in a course is so important. So that's really interesting that you were able to connect with other African storytellers or other teachers in, interested in storytelling. Did you find a lot of um, differences or similarities in, with those storytellers, particularly if they were based in other countries? Um, I haven't seen many differences, I have to be right. honest. Um, we have more similarities. Um, but of course, we have uh, some of us are teachers in teacher education. Some of us are teachers at elementary, secondary. But at the core, we we all love storytelling, and we all find different ways to use it in the classroom. And we share ideas about what worked for us. And um, sometimes we even share videos of our classes, you know, to give other people ideas. And we explain. People ask questions. Okay, how do you do that? Um, or I want to do this. Do you think it's going to work? And other people share what they think, and it helps. And I've also been very lucky that I was able to present at. Um, at a conference, two conferences, in fact, about yeah. one, the Eltan in Nigeria and the Af Africa Elta in Angola, also about using storytelling, you know, in the English language classroom. Oh, wow. And um, what did you end up presenting at those events? Was it something 
very general or specific to uh, the techniques that you use? I think the first one um, in the one I did in Nigeria was really specific. So I did talk about how we need to, the tone, use of tone, mm-hmm. use of pitch, use of gestures, how to lay out the classroom. I was really specific, you know, to give a better idea of how I would do it, use of props, um, some of the activities that I do in class. But the one for Africa Elta, I think, was more general. I just um, identified how storytelling could really be of benefit in speaking, listening, reading and writing. But the beauty of it was that we had a practical session where I had the participants at that conference create a story chain. So the way a story chain works, we, we grouped ourselves into groups of 10 and one person starts the story and then you pass it on. So it, it's really interesting how, you know, the story changes. Sometimes mm. the person that started the story had an intention for how he or she wanted it to end and somebody changes it midway and you, you see that and it's really interesting and same works with the learners. You know, they, they make it and I tell them it's your story. You, I did it in my classroom once. I said, you can kill a character. You can even bring a character back to life, you know, so because some of them were upset that a character got killed off. I was like, okay, it's your story. You can bring it back to life. But, you know, that really brings participation. So I, I like that. The second conference, even though the, the, the speech, the presentation itself was quite general, the participants got a practical feel of how they could use it in the classroom. Wow. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. And I really like that idea of the chain story, did you say? It was uh, yeah. really, really good. Uh, I've, I've, uh, I've had some experience of that, and it's always it can be very... You never know what the results are going to be, do you? But it can be very funny or very dramatic, and uh, it's certainly never boring. Yeah, never boring. Yeah. Do you do you have a favorite story, Rashidat? Is there a, one particular story, either a favorite favorite story to use in the classroom, or a favorite story uh, that you have for whatever other reason? No, I don't really have a favorite story, but recently I, I've fallen in love with Joha stories. I don't know if you know of Joha. No, no, I don't. Okay, so Joha is a character, I think, in Middle Eastern culture. But he's also, his his character is similar to those trickster, but he always does funny things. Like his, his stories are hilarious, but they teach you a lesson. I don't know. So, um, for example, I'll just give a summary of one of the stories. Great. Um, so Joha lived in a village and um, the king or the chief, whatever, invited people to come for a feast and Joha got an invitation. But Joha was kind of a miserly man. He didn't really spend much on his clothes or on himself. So when he went to the feast, he showed his invitation card, but he wasn't allowed to come in because he was poorly dressed. So he went back upset. And the next time there was a feast, he was invited again. He went to the market, the bazaar, and bought the best clothes, the best jewelry, the biggest turban he could find. And when he went back to the feast, he was allowed in and escorted and put in a place of um, pride and importance. And when it was time for the guests to eat, others were putting the food in their mouth and enjoying the meal. Jill has started stuffing the food into his trousers and his shirt sleeves and his collar. And people were surprised under his turban. Like, what's happening? Why are you doing this? He said, well, 
The last time he came poorly dressed, he wasn't allowed to come in. Now that he came well-dressed, he was allowed. So that means it's the clothes that are entitled to the food, not the person. So that was, that's a hilarious story, but it also, you know, has a lesson in it. Wow, yeah, that's really interesting. Really good. So I'm, I'm researching more into Joha stories. I really enjoy reading them. How, how do you spell Joha? Is uh, it as J it sounds? or J-O-H-A. H-A, okay. Uh, some people oh, yeah. spell it J-U-H-A, but any one you search, you probably find it. Um, right. The same character, I think, in some places is called Nasruddin Hoja, but it's basically the same character with different names. Okay, uh, interesting. And so if you were to give advice to teachers who may be listening out there who are very interested in starting to use storytelling techniques with their students and perhaps they haven't done much of any um, how would you suggest they start um, i think i'll just suggest with telling a story either mm -hmm. at the end of your class or at the beginning maybe as a warmer but mm -hmm. it's always good I, I i found it really beneficial to join courses and you know be part of a community but you don't have to you know wait for that um, before you can start and if you you know just google storytelling in the classroom you will find some youtube videos you know that can kick you off if you are not confident but i think as teachers we're all sort of natural storytellers so let's just start and then you know find a way we can use those stories with the techniques even if it's something as simple as role play so some of the activities that you would have done as pre-reading or or you know, pre-reading activities, they, the mm -hmm. same activities can be done as pre-storytelling activities. So you could just adapt some of the things that you've been doing in class, but instead of having it read from a book or from a passage or from a text, tell it as a story. Have your learners share their own stories. You just find the engagement is so much more and you can do more with speaking, especially. Yes, of course. And what about, what about the other skills? If a teacher wanted to incorporate reading or and or writing into their storytelling class how how would you suggest they best do that i i think with teaching i always like to do a lot of experimentation but mm. i prefer to start with the story but it, yeah. it does vary so sometimes i would start with um pre-teaching vocabulary if i know that some of the words in that story are going to be unfamiliar to the learners or some of the things I want to pass across. So I would start with pre-teaching, but a lot of the times, even when I want to use it to um, hammer on grammar points, I start with the story, then I go into the plenary to explain the grammar point, then we tell the story again. Or sometimes if I've recorded myself, they just read, listen to the story again and try to um, then identify some of those grammar points. So the first listening is just to enjoy and understand the story. And then subsequent listening would be, you know, to um, to apply whatever I wanted them to apply. But in some cases, so there was a time I was teaching contractions in class. I had taught the contractions and I decided to use the story of um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs just to 
have an activity in the classroom. So we had done the contractions, we had done some examples. And then I told the learners, I knew most of them were familiar with that story. I said, I'm going to tell the story of Snow White and the, and the Seven Dwarfs. And I want you to listen and write any contraction you hear me saying while I'm telling the story. So that was as simple as that activity was. So I told the story, they listened. And when I finished, I gave everybody the opportunity to say the contractions that they heard. And I wrote them out on the board and split them up again, you know, something like that. Of course, yeah, that's a very good idea. And that, that involves the students actually reading along with you, is that right? And spotting they, the contractions? Listening. I, I was telling the listening. story from memory, yes. Okay. I was telling the story from memory and they were listening. And just as they hear a contraction, they write it down. And why I mentioned this is that this is a story that they are all familiar with, so they don't have to focus for the plot. They were mm. focusing for my contractions. But if it's a new story that I, I know they don't know, I would start with the story without any activity linked to it, allow them to absorb the story, and then introduce whatever aspect of English I wanted to talk about, and then listen to the story again and do the activity. Yes, of course. I like the idea of using a story that they would be familiar with because uh, that makes sense that they don't have to worry about uh, well they I think definitely what as you say the first time someone is listening to a story they they want to know uh, what's going to happen they're pulled along by the pot so yeah. that's a very good 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 advice for teachers to do that if you're focusing on grammar or vocabulary mm. so Rashida I'm I've also seen um, on your About Me page that you passionately advocate for literacy and education by hosting camps and courses. I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that aspect of your uh, work. Yes, I, I can. And it's something I love to do. And um, it's something I've been doing for about four or five years now. Every mm -hmm. holiday, I try to organize a reading program. I have different foci sometimes uh, but generally it's about getting the learners or the children to come in to have access to books to explore books so some so for example i had one last year it was called a literacy boot camp and then mm -hmm. i focused on speaking listening you know reading and writing with vocabulary those were the five core areas but the one i had the year before last was just titled genres of texts so we started looking at the different types of genres. I asked the learners which ones they preferred. We looked at the, you know, the, the characteristics of each genre, fiction, historical fiction, uh, comedy, adventure, things like that. And at the end of the, it was a two day camp. At the end, I had them write a story of the, their preferred genre, you know. So there's always so much. Um, in the past, this year, I didn't hold any camp because um, I've now created a, um, a non-profit organization, which is a mm. mobile library. It's called the Mobile Reading Room. And what we do is that we take books to some of the underserved communities and we uh, we do this on, on weekends, actually. We just take the books to them. We, read, we do read-alouds. We do um, creative response activities based on the read-alouds. And we allow them to borrow books and return after a week or two weeks. Um, so that's been my focus 
for this year because I just felt that the other camps were a bit limiting. Those were all paid paid camps, and um, those were attended by my own acquaintances, people I knew. Not always. Um, well, they all needed it, but I felt I wanted to reach out to those that couldn't afford it or were far away from where they could get access to books. But I haven't stopped. I'm hoping to, you know, try to find a way to also continue with the paid camps and programs. Um, there was one I had, we called it RAVE, and RAVE was an acronym for Reading and Vocabulary uh, Exposé. I can't even remember what the E was for <laughs> anymore, you know. So I just give them those names sometimes, and we just try to look at different aspects of reading and literacy. Oh, wonderful. And you spoke a little bit about the mobile library, which I yes. came across the website and your Instagram account um, when when I was connecting with you. And uh, it looks fabulous. And there's some amazing pictures there um, of uh, what I presume is teachers with big picture books talking yes. to children who look completely captivated. And uh, it must be quite an opportunity that you're giving those uh, students and those teachers to be able to have access to books. It's wonderful. Yeah, uh, it, it, it is wonderful. So a lot of those teachers are my friends. They're volunteers. Mm -hmm. And we, we go to those communities. One of the communities, they don't even have a school there because it's somewhat um, in the backwoods. But the other community, they do. Uh, so those are some of the communities where the, their English wouldn't be as fluent as others. But after just three months of reading with them regularly, you see them communicating better in English. You see them more confident. You know, we see those differences, more creative. Um, if we give them a task, so maybe uh, once we read a story on about Alice in Wonderland and I gave them... Yeah, I'm trying to remember a good one. I, I read a story about the stick man. And I gave them some pieces of lollipop sticks to create um, anything they, they could with the sticks. And one of the students created a stick man. And I was so impressed. Like that wasn't, I never thought they could do that. I was thinking, okay, they'd make houses. I gave samples. We did a house, like a Pentagon shaped house, you know, things like that. That was our, what most of them did. But, you know, they were able to express themselves more and just talk about their ideas. It's, it's really satisfying to be able to do that. Uh, it, it makes me go back over and over. Wonderful. And people, if they wanted to, can get updates about that site. They can donate or they can volunteer. Is that right? And yes. in order to do that, they should go to your the website, mobilereadingroom.org. Yes, thank you. Wonderful. Is, and that's something you just started this year, is it? It's actually, this is the second year. Uh, it started okay. last year. So this is the second year it's running. But I think this year we got a bit, we got the website this year. And, you know, even for the, for, for the donations, we're just about to start. We've been collecting donations in kind before now. People have been mm -hmm. donating books. But now we're um, fully registered. So we're, the bank account is coming up and everything. So we're, we're still growing. Oh, wonderful initiative. Uh, I imagine it takes up quite a lot of your time. Uh, it, it used to. It used to because initially it wasn't easy, but we did come up with um, a sort of plan about, you know, things to do, activities to do, books to read ahead of time. So it's mainly weekends, Saturdays and Sundays. And now 
um, I do have some volunteers, so I don't have to be at all the sessions. Initially, I every weekend I was I was booked. I had to be there, but um, right. yeah. So what what is taking up more of my time now is around you know getting more communities to key in and be willing to participate, and also getting more support. Um, you know from financially basically yeah of course of course and it's called the mobile reading room is it just one it's not just one sec um, group of books that travels around is it is it is several at, or <laughs> at the moment it's just one group of just books. the one okay yes but we we're looking at um you know part of making it sustainable is that if we're able to get more communities to welcome us, those communities where we already have a strong presence, we could leave them a collection of books, you know, to exchange within themselves, to sort of run the program almost on their own while we check in from time to time. But for now, it's just one set of, a lot of books. We have two, two and a half suitcases full. So. Oh wow! And how does the how do the people who are actually moving the library get around? Uh, so it's it's still a really small operation. I use my husband's car. He has um, okay. I'm trying to remember what it's called. It's a Sienna station wagon side of kind of car. So it's kind of big. So we use that to lug the books and the volunteers around. But we are planning to get a bus that would be the mobile library because at the moment when we're done we have to put the books back in the house and then put them back in the car when we want to go out but once we have our own vehicle it could just um house the books permanently oh fantastic well i wish you all the best of success with that thank you and um well another as i said when i was starting to to follow the um follow the the links that when I was looking to research uh, the show notes for this, I found you're particularly interested also in teaching with emotional intelligence. Yes. And I'd love to hear more about that. Um, how was it that you became particularly interested in that aspect of, of psychology or of teaching? Yeah, so I've, I've always been quite fortunate that I had good teachers. I think mm -hmm. maybe just one or two teachers um, that I don't remember so fondly. But I realized that so many other people have horrible experiences of school and of their teachers. Right. And even as I came into the profession, I realized a lot of teachers are, well, not a lot. I realized that some teachers are bitter, they're overworked, they're, you know, they're stressed. Some people just believe that they, they should teach uh, with tough love the same way they were taught. I mean, for a lot of us, I'm seeing something in the conversation about using a rod. You know, some a lot of teachers were raised with a rod, but we need to be able to move away from that type of teaching so that the learners can love learning. They, they can open their minds and their selves. And I think at a point, someone just casually mentioned to me that they think I'm quite emotionally intelligent because of the way I, I interact and try to diffuse situations. I'm not always mm -hmm. successful, but <laughs> you know, it's something I, I, I try to do to keep the peace, to, to speak in a way where you know, things can move forward. So when the person said that, I thought to myself, well, 
okay, I've been looking to find my skills and people have noticed this about me. I need to do a bit more research, take some courses, share what I know, you know, share what I believe in. And because I believe, you know, it's important for us as teachers it will help prevent burnout. It will help us to give our best if we're emotionally intelligent. And then it will help us to give the best to the learners. We can also, because emotional intelligence is basically about self-awareness, um, self-management, relationship, aware, social awareness and relationship management. So as teachers, we do deal with um, learners, with parents, with colleagues, with management. We need to be able to manage these relationships properly you know and and um, emotional intelligence equips us with some of those tools that we need to do that so. right and and if teachers want to kind of learn more about this or to develop their aspect of emotional intelligence how would you what would you suggest they do is it through trying to become more reflective or are there other ways that teachers can actually develop in this way I think you, you did hit on hit it on the head. Um, reflection and introspection is a big, big part. I mean, if you're able to really understand yourself, you know your triggers, you know what helps you to work better, you can do some things to work on your strengths. You can do some things to improve on your weak points you become a better person. And if you do need to avoid some places, some people, some things, you do that. You know, you know, just before you explode, you know, you know, so that is the beginning, that ability to be reflective, mm -hmm. ref to reflect, to be mindful. Mindfulness is another important practice that I think helps us, you know, after the stressful day, you can ground yourself during the day if you're mindful of what's going on you tend to be able to respond rather than react you know then you regret your your reactions you know things like that so that is a good beginning but um there are tools out there there are trainings out there that can sometimes help um sometimes just something as simple as asking a friend because some of us um, find it difficult to see our own reflections clearly. But if you ask a trusted friend, what, what are my strengths? What do you think I need to improve on? Uh, and, you know, even that ability to have a growth mindset, there's so much around it. But yes, reflection is the first place. Yes, I think you've hit upon lots of um, interesting things like growth, mindset, mindfulness, reflection, um, and not to just try and do it on your own, I think it's so important for teachers to reach out to colleagues, reach out to other people um, online or wherever you can find communities of practice of teachers to help develop your interests with other people who are developing, developing them at the same time. Um, for me, that is, that is definitely the key. One of the things I really think is, is interesting for teachers to do is to is to observe other teachers. I don't know if you've done much much of that, but peer observation uh, of colleagues can really um, help you yes, I, I see agree. things that perhaps, yeah. Have you done much of that, Rashidat? Um, I, I I have, but it's it's a two way thing because when I started teaching, yeah. uh, because I started in a volunteer capacity, I was really lucky to have mm -hmm. that opportunity to understudy and observe you know other teachers just for the purposes of learning and growing and um, as the years 
you know, went on. I am now in a middle management position where I get to observe teachers in a bit to help them improve their own um, practices. But I still learn a lot from, you know, talking with them, discussing with them while trying to identify things that they did well and things that can be done better. It's just that sometimes when you're observing, you know, as a superior, you you tend to have a different um, mindset and sometimes even the interaction yeah. between you and the person you're observing changes they become a bit more apprehensive because their performance review may depend on it unlike when it's just a neutral peer observation but i find it all of it is useful you know especially for me as a as a person as an individual of course i mean that's always the case even if you have the best intentions in mind and do what you can to tell the teacher that you're observing, um, why you're observing them, uh, and you know, focus upon the supportive aspects of it. If you do have that relationship with them as your their kind of supervisor or line manager or whatever, yeah. I think it's natural for teachers to feel a little bit nervous about being observed. But it's yeah. definitely it, it for me. It's one of those things. I feel it's such a um, there's such a such potential there with of observing other teachers teach and you being observed that is not being tapped into uh, so i keep coming back to something uh, it, as being something very important for teachers to be be involved in I, I think I agree. It's it's really um, it's really powerful. There's something we we do in our school sometimes um, where we 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 call it co planning. So that also is something that is really helpful if you can co-plan with um, the same teachers in your form or same teachers in your subject area um, and then have them even observe you after that. It, it, it can do wonders, you know, to improve us. Yeah, definitely. That's uh, really, uh, really interesting. And um, another thing that I've discovered following the links, as I said before, I have been able to see that you were involved in with a colleague in the British Council's World Teachers Day on a session called Planning Lessons for the 21st Century Learner. Could you um, speak a little bit about that? What is it that you think is different about the 21st century learner that you need to have a particular focus on? Yes, yeah, so my colleague Hafsa and I, we, we did think about it. And a lot of times we, we tend to discuss, you know, the, difference, the differences between when we were in school and now. And we, we know that it's not the same. And some of the things, one of the things we did even in that um, presentation was to ask the audience, what are some of the traits or characteristics of 21st century learners? And um, a lot of people talked about the fact that they're, you know, tech savvy. They are highly inquisitive. Um, when we were younger, whatever the teacher said was law. But now, you know, we, we do say that you can't afford to be um, the sage on the stage anymore because Google is there to tell them everything. Uh, we even have... AI, which some of us are yet to come to terms with, uh, threatening you. So we need to be able to move on, to be able to 
engage the 21st century learners. Some people even mentioned that they have shorter attention span. I'm not sure that's the case, but we agreed to say that they prefer multimedia. You know, so those are some of the things that we need to put into consideration when planning lessons for them. How can you include multimedia? How can you engage them? Do you need to include technology? How can you um, teach to their inquisitive nature? And um, their individualistic nature, you know, all of that, how can you bring it together in the classroom? So we, we ended up talking about the fact that we can even introduce them, you know, ask them questions before you plan your lessons. So they can be of help. And we talked about things like polls and surveys and needs analysis um, before you're, you're planning to try to really understand what they want. And we also looked into personalized learning a little bit and to be able to cater to some of their needs. Okay, that's uh, really, really interesting to hear. And to come, come back to technology, what, in, in the context of Nigeria, um, what, um, what amount of technology do you think learners and teachers have access to? Is it something that's growing? Is it mainly mobile technology? Would it be used generally in education? Is that kind of increasing or what is the current situation? Yeah, I think it's definitely increasing, but it will probably depend on which part of the country you're in. Mm -hmm. So if mm -hmm. you're in the more rural areas, like even in the rural areas, they are being slowly introduced to mobile technology. So mm -hmm. WhatsApp is everywhere. So you, you find teachers sending links through WhatsApp sending pictures and texts through WhatsApp for learners, mm -hmm. even in those areas that are not so high tech. But in, in the cities, um, so for example, where I work, it's a private institution. We have whiteboards in some, we have smart boards in some of the classes. We have a projector, we have our laptops. The learners themselves do not have devices, but we do have an ICT lab where if need be, they would go in to use the systems. And many of them have tablets or laptops in their houses. So we use Google Classroom to send assignments, to send video links, to send um, things like that. So more and more it's becoming used. Some people use Microsoft Teams um, and other software. Uh, even in my class where the learners don't have access to their own mm -hmm. personal devices, I was able to use a Kahoot game. So I just borrowed phones from my friends, my co-teachers, and I mm -hmm. had them in groups of four. And I used my laptop to project the game and the children were able to participate fully. So more and more we are using technology and I think it's, it's here to stay, uh, but it does depend largely on what part of the country you're in. Of course, and possibly yeah. on what type of school, because some of the government-owned yeah. institutions may not be as well off. But an average school, even the government ones, would have an ICT lab. Oh right, that's that's really interesting to hear. It's something I'm particularly interested in because in my work, um, one of the projects that we are involved in is trying to use sort of low-tech approaches, essentially, yeah. kind of. Uh, Telegram or WhatsApp yes, yes. Uh, to help teachers develop and providing um, sort of development through 
Telegram, so either PDFs or short audios or even some videos to be able to help the teachers uh, develop certain areas of their practice. So I think that for me is kind of key. And you think that a lot of even rural school teachers would have access to mobiles or, or more, more so that is the case in Nigeria? Uh, I, I think most of the teachers would have access to mobiles. Um, right. And I think even the phones that are not so high tech will mm -hmm. be able to support uh, WhatsApp. They may not be able to support Telegram, I'm not sure, but it's almost the same thing. Uh, yeah. the, the only other issues may be around um, money to purchase data, but I, I think it's still something that is very useful and people are using here. WhatsApp and Telegram for teacher training, even for the learners themselves. Um, if your parents don't have a smartphone, your uncle or brother or somebody around you is likely to have one. Oh, wonderful. That's great to hear. Um, so um, I think we're coming towards the end of of what we planned to talk about, or what I planned to ask you about. Um, I did want to ask uh, for anyone listening in live whether they wanted to join us uh, to ask any questions or make any comments. But um, where we, we've had quite a few people coming and going. There isn't anyone currently in the, um, in the studio. So I'd just like to say, I've, as I've been exploring um, your online profile Rashidat I keep finding more and more that you're becoming involved in which is uh, fabulous you're so active I wanted to ask you is there anything else that I haven't discovered yet that uh, that is part of your professional educational teaching life um, I guess so. Uh, so last year, I was fortunate to be selected as one of those to participate in exploratory action research with the oh, British right. Council. Um, we are launching our publication. It was focused on gender. Um, so the publication mm. has been launched on the 28th of October. And that's something I was really happy to be part of. Um, I've always, you know, wanted to be able to explore things I find challenging in the classroom and I didn't really know how I could go about it. So being part of that, you know, gave me great insight and we were really guided on, you know, how to craft our questions, how to questionnaires, how to collect our data, how to write the reports, you know, and but outside of all that, I think what I loved about it, it was that it allowed me to connect really deeper with my learners and they they asked me you know at the end i explained to them that okay i'm doing this research I, I want to find out this and they were eager to ask me you know what was the end result and i was also able to have a focus group with um, other english teachers in my school which was also very helpful we had some discussions that we'd never we've been having informally but this was like a, a meeting um, focusing on those topics and we were able to share ideas and see the differences. So my school where I work, we, we have nursery, primary and secondary. So I got all the teachers from the whole range to meet. Uh, and we had some robust discussion about how does um, reading change and confidence level change as the learners grow, you know, it was really enlightening. 
And just the fact that the learners were excited to fill my questionnaire, they felt that they were being listened to. They had a lot of interesting suggestions for me and it was really nice. Oh, that's fabulous to hear. If May I ask um, who from the British Council is involved in helping uh, run that programme or who are the people involved, just in case I might I might know them. Uh, as you, you might. I think Paula. Paula is somewhere in South America. Uh, Paula so Rabayedo. Yes, yes. From Paula Chile, yeah. yeah. I've been trying to get Paula to join me on this uh, in this programme for months now. But uh, she's so busy. Uh, she's doing really busy. She's and doing. She, she does a great job. She hasn't job. been able to, uh, we haven't been able to connect or find a, a date. But I'm hope, yeah. hopeful that in the future we'll be able to get her on because she's fascinating. Yeah, wonderful. She is. She is. She's, she's really good. Uh, she, she helped us in such a good way that made things easy to understand. You know, the, the way we look at research, especially those of us that are not too academically mm. inclined, um, it's, it's daunting and she was able to really break it down for us yeah that's great to hear i mean i think that's the whole point of this exploratory action research is to kind of demystify research and try yes. to make it more relevant than a lot of academic research is for exactly. teachers really yes. so moving away from the kind of this sort of closed academic um university um kind of environment and move it into yes. the classroom and make it relevant and meaningful for what actually happens and to promote change in the classroom. I think it's a fantastic thing to do. For many years, we, we did it in the Americas. We did it in Chile, in Mexico, in Colombia a little bit, and in Peru. And uh, we had so many wonderful uh, research projects out of it. So I'm sure it's, it's something that uh, is very beneficial. Yes, I believe so. Great. So that's one of the things. Is there anything else, Rashida, that uh, we haven't I, mentioned? I'm not, I'm not really sure because I am I am involved in a number of things. But um, well, I, I one thing that I'm happy that I've been able to do, I've wanted to do for a long time, is to write a children's book. So oh, I, wow. I was able to write and publish one last year. And um, oh, fantastic! Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So that, that's another thing I hope to be able to do more of. Um, yeah. Is it a, what age is it, is it targeted for? Is it, is it a picture book or is it a, it, is it's, it a, it's a, I think I would call it maybe a novel, novella. It's a 50 page chapter book. It has five okay. chapters, but it's a really tiny one. And the age would be eight to 11, 12. Um, yeah. So it, it's, it's a book that I wrote. I've been wanting to write fiction. It wasn't even the title I originally had in mind. But last year, Ramadan, I had people asking me, you mm. know, about Ramadan. So I decided to just write a book that would expose people of other faiths um, to what Ramadan means to the Muslims. So it's titled Ramadan Escapades. And I had fun writing it. Oh, fabulous. That sounds great. And it's done through um, depiction of what it means to a particular person or people or families? Yes, so it, it's a fiction that follows the journey of a boy. He's, I think, a 14-year-old boy in that story and how how he spends his Ramadan and some of the challenges he had, you know, while fasting and things like that. And just family, it's more of family in, you know, things that happen in the home. 
yeah his relationship with his siblings and his grandparents things like that oh great and is this the first of many more to come i hope so i do hope so <laughs> have you got any other ideas for things you want to write um i i do have a few ideas and um, even before i wrote this one i had some some work on um this a creative common site african storybook um, yeah. for younger learners i i love um Julia Donaldson, I think is her name. I love her work because she's able to use rhymes to, to tell stories. So that's something I also want to try to explore, you know, for the younger learners. But so I'm looking at work for younger learners and something also for that middle school age group. Oh, that sounds great. Well, uh, I will definitely try and uh, seek out uh, the book that you've you've written and uh, get hold of it and um, look forward to hearing about more of your uh, wonderful projects. So I think, um, I think we can, we can wrap things up now. I just want to say thank you very, very much for agreeing to come on the show and sharing all of the great projects and your kind of journey through education with us, Rashida. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much, Graham. It's been fun being here. I'm so glad we connected the way we did and uh, and I heard about some of the things that you were doing. So that was wonderful. If you would like to suggest anyone else I should have on my show, that goes for you, Rashidat, or any one of the listeners who uh, is out there at the moment, then please get in touch. Um, I'm always looking for interesting guests. So keep it in mind and, uh, and definitely... Um, send them my way all right we'll do okay so thank you very much everybody that brings us to the end of today's twilight show many many thanks to today's special guest Rashida Sadiq for sharing all of her stories with us and techniques and um, and other projects that she is involved in and thank you very much also to all of you who joined us live and also to all of you who are listening back to the recording. And so that is it from me. And there are Teachers Talk radio shows all week on all manner of interesting topics. Uh, so please listen in live to the recordings. And I will hope you will all join me again the next time at the same time. Bye for now. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, -face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. 
This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Just Stop Oil have spray-painted universities across England. The climate campaigners used orange paint to coat buildings at the universities of Leeds, Manchester and Cambridge, according to a report on the BBC News website. The latest protests came after other universities across the country were also targeted. Just Stop Oil say the protests are against the UK government's plans to licence new oil and gas projects. The BBC report featured comments from a spokesperson for University of Leeds, which said that whilst they support the right to legal protest, they were hugely disappointed that the results had been vandalism. At the University of Cambridge, a protester painted the neo-Gothic King's College orange and was confronted by members of the public. The majority of protesters have been arrested and charged with criminal damage. After the Tory party conference, attention turned to Labour's proposals for education should they be elected. Bridget Phillipson, Shadow Education Secretary, said a Labour government would upskill non-math specialists in primary schools to create the maths equivalent to phonics. The announcement marks a clear dividing line with Conservative policies, with Labour focused on the youngest school children, whilst Conservatives have focused on extending compulsory maths teaching to 18. The curriculum review would also be tasked with bringing maths to life and directing teachers to show children how numeracy is used in the world around them. The plans have been tentatively welcomed by the NAHT, and General Secretary Paul Whiteman said it was vital that Labour builds upon the excellent maths teaching that is already taking place. Jeff Barton of Askell added, ensuring that primary schools have the funding for the resources they need was vital to improving attainment. After the distressing news of events unfolding in Israel, many news outlets have reported on government plans to support Jewish schools with extra security guards. Security and police patrols have already been increased, but the government has given £3 million in funding. Measures taken by some schools already include pupils being told to remove blazers and school trips being postponed. The BBC also reported that three schools have closed due to concerns. The Community Security Trust, CST, which provides protection for Jewish communities in the UK, 
said there had been 139 anti-Semitic incidents since the recent attacks on Israel. At this time last year, there had been only 21 incidents. A government spokesperson said it was very concerned a small number of Jewish faith schools had temporarily closed and that it would be working to support them to open safely. Finally, BBC Wales education correspondent Bethan Lewis writes that children as young as seven or eight are using social media, according to a major survey in Wales. Responses from more than 32,000 children aged 7 to 11 suggest almost half use social media sites or apps a few times a week. Public health experts said the data was concerning, as most social media carry minimum age recommendations of 13. Parents also responded with many saying they found it hard to strike the right balance between the benefits and pitfalls of smartphones. Full details of the survey can be found on the BBC Wales section of the news website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox.